Welcome to Offshore Explorer. I'm Scott Dodgson. Um, today I'm talking about fugitives. There's this kind of really cool thing that a lot of people that are fugitives, and you'd be surprised at the kinds of people that are fugitives running from the law, uh, running from lots of different people, powerful people, worried about their life, worried about death. Um, and then there's a sort of emotional um, escapism that happens, but we're sort of all like these little fugitives. But boats happen to be one of those places that when cruising and traveling around the world, you happen to run into a lot of interesting characters that happen to be fugitives. And it's an aspect of sailing that I don't think anybody really pays attention to. But it is a sort of interesting um, facet, I suppose, of sailing. And they're not the kind of people that you would think um, when you picture fugitives in your mind. Um, so anyway, let's get started uh, on the show itself. I had found over, um, I guess, you know, I've been sailing probably closer to 50 years I know, that sounds like I say that, and I kind of like go, well, is it 50 years? Well, it's actually probably more than that, um, but uh, I've been sailing literally all my life. I've had a few breaks to go do other things, um, which is good, but for the most part, uh, yeah, I've been sailing about that long. So I found in those 50 years that uh, the world um, is full of strange and wonderful things and people and fugitives of all sorts gravitate to boats as a way of hiding from authorities. I know a little bit about this fugitive status. I was a fugitive myself, not wanted by the law, but I was so emotionally disconnected, my head put out a warrant for my heart. There is this beautiful disconnectedness about sailing. Ocean as far as the eye can see. And I have met and been absolutely surprised by sailors who turns out to have been fugitives from the law. I met Amos Hardy on the dock in Puerto Vallarta. I was coming into the slip from Cabo St. Lucas after a very rough windy, rainy couple of days across the mouth of the Gulf of California. I stood off in the bay while a squall roared through, pushing the boat back out to sea. I mean, it was, it was intense. Um, the squall lasted for about 30 minutes. The deck was like pristine clean, uh, washed away from all the rain. The salt was gone. It was just gorgeous. And, you know, the water just poured out of the gunnels and, and, you know, then the tropical sun came out and the whole place was like just this natural, like, steam bath. I found this slip and where I was going to stay for a couple of days on this trip that I was making. I was going from, uh, in this case, I was going from San Diego um, down to Polynesia. And I was going down the coast, stopping along the way. Um, the plan was to go all the way to Ecuador, 
um, and see if we could get a permit to go out to the Galapagos Islands uh, with the boat, which you have to have a permit or they won't let you go out there. Otherwise, if we didn't get the permit, we'd just it'd be a straight shot out to Polynesia with the current, with the wind, and the trades, and it would be just a beautiful, you know, comfortable sail. So as I was coming into the dock, um, there was this this guy who jumped off his uh, his boat, and 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 my mate Alex was was ready with the lines at the bow and. You know, the fenders were down to the port two side of docking. And that's when I saw Amos for the first time. He hustled off a 32-foot bayliner to catch our lines. He was dressed in a white business shirt, unbuttoned to the third button from the top. His shirt hung over his uh, naturally big-ass belly. And he wore pink, um, I guess, pink bathing suit trunks or whatever um he was not an athletic figure um he never was he was more pear-shaped um and he had black loafers on now this isn't the kind of outfit that you would expect to see from somebody on the dock um in puerto vallarta or pretty much anywhere unless it was somebody bolting out of work to get on their boat and they were going to change once they got started but he caught the bow line. He started to pull the boat line. He started to pull the boat really hard with the line. And I yelled at him, just tie it off, just tie it off. And he looked at me. He was like totally puzzled. And I could see that he wasn't comfortable with taking orders. He smiled a thin sort of smile. And my mate stepped onto the dock. And my other mate, Joe, who was sleeping, came up from the companionway, stretched and yawned, and then... Hopped onto the dock, taking the stern line with him. We kissed the dock so gently. And Amos let out a cheer. Well done, Captain. I'm American. I greeted him and I thanked him for helping with the lines. He seemed like a really nice guy. And he goes, where did you come from? Where was I going? You know, the whole 50 questions kind of thing going on. And he said, I hope you had a good trip down from the USA. And you can always tell a new traveler, especially Americans, they always seem ready to join other Americans. And they find, I think they find the foreign experience a bit taxing. You know, it's just like this comfort zone. Americans aren't alone in this behavior. The English do the same thing. Um, the Italians, maybe a little bit, the French could care less if another Frenchman is over there, but they, yeah, they'll pay attention. But Americans are really enthusiastic about you know, getting together with other Americans. It's just a weird observation I've made. But in any case, Amos invited it, invited us over to his boat for a drink. And, you know, we were just happy to be on the dock. We had had a rough ride down from Cabo. And Amos started to spin this story about his trip down the Baja. He drove his 32-foot bayliner from Los Angeles and as he was telling his story, you know, he was running his hands through his thinning hair. Um, you know, he was a stressed out man trying to be cool, trying to make a connection. And Alex told me later he felt sorry for Amos. He was way out of his element. And, you know, 
I asked, what did he think Amos's element was? And corporate was a simple answer. He was just a corporate guy, straight up corporate guy, vacations with the family at Disney World. That's it, done. Never traveled. Didn't know how to act anywhere he went, except in the corporate environment. He was an accountant for a school board in New York. And he stole money from the school board for years. And he referred to the theft as a salary compensation. This is what he told me. He wasn't getting paid enough, and he had to support his family. And he, feel, he felt really bad about it. But he was in a lot of, he had a lot of pressure on him. His wife spent too much, and his two kids needed a lot of dental work. And he didn't think anybody would notice. He added bills for a service company he owned, um, but didn't do anything, for a little over a million dollars in false billing. He claimed he was going to pay it back. It got out of hand. And his supervisor, for some unknown reason, kept approving the payments over and over again without asking what they were for or why or whatever the case may be, and just trusted Amos to say, yeah, that's okay, and he just kept it kept going, and as he said, it kind of got out of control, and he couldn't put it back in the box. And I asked him, I said, "Do you have any money left?" He had this relatively new Bayliner, and he was hoping to sell it, but instead, he drove away from the dock and kept going, and Puerto Vallarta was where he landed. Anyone who sailed the Baja coast knows there are not many places to get gas along the way. Those few gas stations are enough, are far enough apart um, that you either need a bladder or barrels of fuel. And carrying gasoline on the deck is a dangerous uh, proposition. Diesel is okay, um, but gas is just, you know, that's insane. One spark, boom, it all blows up. But diesel, you know, you could throw a lighted cigarette into a puddle of diesel. It won't, it won't uh, uh, burst into flames. So much uh, to his credit, he wasn't going to get far without doing something. And at this point, um, he was a fugitive. So the story is, according to him, that the sheriff had gone to his door to arrest him, his home. But he dashed out the back of the door when he heard the knock, and he was wearing his business suit and the shirt that he had on. Uh, the shorts were on board. He drove down uh, the 101, I guess he lived in the valley, uh, to the 405. He parked his car at the uh, airport long stay lot, and he took a bus back to the marina. Um, you could see how he would do that in Marina del Rey. Um, not hard. But his biggest anxiety was that the sheriff's harbor patrol would be alerted and, and he would be nabbed. So he, he waited until dark and he slipped onto his boat, started it, and left quietly. Now, people that uh, sail out of Marina del Rey know that the sheriff's station um, overlooks the entrance and exit of the harbor, the main part of it. And they've got a pretty good view of everything going on but rarely do they pay any attention. So he, he left quietly, and he headed south 
towards Mexico. All he had was his driver's license, 600 bucks in cash, and his credit cards, which were going to be um, canceled very, very soon. This was the 80s, and an instant reporting of your card was still kind of delayed. And, and Amos knew enough about how to use his credit cards before they get canceled. And I just want to make an aside that I went down to uh, Mexico and used my credit card um, down in Cozumel um, in the 80s. And the bill for the hotel um, didn't come back for like a month. And um, it was, I was really quite shocked that it didn't. And um, they upped my credit unit limit because I was there. I had, I had like $500 worth of credit limit, which at the time was, you know, a nice amount. Um, but uh, they came back and they, they just said, because, oh, you're an international traveler, we'll give you a $5,000 credit limit. And it was like, oh, okay, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, that's, so sometimes when you're f traveling internationally and stuff, it's much different now. I mean, if if you're in 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 Thailand or wherever, and you use your credit card and it's over the limit, it'll say right away it's over the limit. There's no lag. It's the whole system is connected. There's no way of getting over on anything or floating checks or whatever you want to call it. But so he Amos kind of knew all this. So he was he was also very desperate, and. I guess in a kind of insane way, um, he was just, you know, he was a sad sack, to put it honestly. Um, but anyway, he filled up the boat in Ensenada. Now, he's lucky he didn't get his boat impounded in, in Ensenada because they take it pretty serious. When you go to get fuel, you have to have your passport, you have to have your papers, you have to check in. Um, you've got you, in some cases they ask you to have your, uh, a visa for your boat before you get there. There's a lot of things that go on. Um, and sometimes you can go in, it's, it's not, you know, hard and fast rules, but it's, there are rules and if they want to screw with you, they can screw with you. So I guess he figured he's coming in with his driver's license to fill up his boat. And he tells the guy that he got off course he had mechanical trouble because the co you know the U.S. border is not very far from Ensenada, and he didn't know he was in Mexican waters, and he needed fuel to get back to San Diego. So this was like a sort of plausible excuse. He got his fuel, and he made it down to Turtle Bay, but he arrived literally on fumes. Now the range of this boat this Bayliner at 10 knots is about 340 nautical miles, according to the brochure. And Amos told me he was praying all the way. Um, what God he prayed to, I have no clue. But it was obviously a God that was quite forgiving. The next leg he had to do was to fuel in Mag Bay, a little town of Santa Maria. Um, there's a couple of big sport fishing boats that operate out of there. It's, it's, you know, going into Mag Bay is a long process. Um, a lot of reefs and stuff. You kind of got to know where you're going and you got to have a chart. And, and, and I asked him, I said, do you have this? And he said, oh no. He says, I got this. Uh, I got this from the ship store, the local channel. 
and it was a book and it you know it had a chart hand-drawn chart of mag bay you know with a little gas station on it and he this is what he used for navigation purposes it's amazing that he didn't run in over a reef a really truly amazing but sometimes you know ignorance can be lucky so he made it all the way down to Cabo St. Lucas. Um, he, he, he came in, he filled his boat up using his credit card again. And, and, he t and he went up to a broker's office. And the broker was an expat American. Um, some of you have been down there know who I'm talking about. And um, he talked to the broker about selling his boat. And, and, and because he wanted to, you know, um, get some dough, he thought he could, he made up all sorts of stories about, you know, he thought he could get a better price here and this, that, another thing. Um, but it had nothing to do with the fact that there was a warrant out for him, but the broker checked it out, checked the boat out because he would have taken the listing and told Amos that, look, this boat and you are wanted by U.S. law enforcement. And the broker was really nice. He could, I guess he felt sympathy for Amos. And he says, look, I have to go down to tell the harbor master, if he doesn't already know, that we have to impound your boat. So he sort of looked at Amos and said, hey, look, get on your boat and go. Good luck. So Amos ran down to the boat, gone in the boat, and he drove the boat in the direction of Puerto Vallarta. Now, Puerto Vallarta is pretty far from Cabo San Lucas. And his boat ran out, ran out of fuel about 50 nautical miles off the coast of Mexico. I don't even know if he was in the right direction. He was just, he knew he'd hit land if he kept going. He drifted, literally drifted for a couple of days. And he told me that he confessed. He confessed to God. He confessed he was wrong. He prayed. He promised he would turn himself in, that he would take his medicine. He swore on his knees, looking up at the heavens as the boat was tossing on the ocean. I couldn't be a fugitive from justice. I can't abandon my family. I have, to, I have to turn myself in and face the music. And at that moment, a Mexican fishing boat came along to see if he needed help. And they towed him all the way to Puerto Vallarta. His prayers were answered, sort of. The fisherman offered him a good price for the boat. And he thought, okay, I, he needed the money right away. Half the value of the bayliner was better than nothing at this point, given that the the, the warnings had gone out to every port um, and police authority looking for this specific boat. This all happens really fast. Um, if, if somebody steals a boat and, and it's registered, there's a network of, of uh, marinas. They all get faxes with pictures of the boat, um, all the statistics and everything to say, hey, you see this boat, call this number. You know, send us an email. We'll we'll be right there to you know grab it. And this happens all over the world. 
and and it's it, it's not a perfect system um, because you can get over on it, um, but it is a system that is um, in place. So when I sailed up and docked my boat, um, he was actually waiting for the fisherman to come back with his money. And I asked him, I said, did you get your money? And he says, yes. And he was, there was like this smug, smugness about him. This affirmation was smug. Oh, that's great, isn't it? And I, I couldn't tell that maybe he didn't get the money, you know? And we were having dinner at the time. He had taken, taken me out to dinner. And, and I wasn't even sure that he could afford dinner. Then he hit me with this bomb. He says, can you take me with you? I've, I've just listened to this whole story, okay? Just as you've heard me tell it. And at the time, the wind was blowing through this open-air restaurant. And iguanas were screaming and the screeching sound of reptiles, you know, faded on the onset of another thunderous squall. And Amos looked so helpless. And I could see in his eyes, I was his last bit of luck if I would just say yes. But it's a big ask. Amos didn't know how risky it was for me and the owner of the boat of taking on a fugitive on board, especially if I'm aware of it. Our side could lose, well, virtually everything. I would be jailed. The boat would be impounded. It would be a big kerfuffle. kerfuffle. It would take a long time to get it sorted out. And it would be ugly. So I leaned over to the table with all the dishes, steak bones, chewed steak gristle, you know, half-empty glasses. And I whispered to him, I said, go home. Be with your family. You, you're young, you do your time, do whatever it is, get it over, restart the whole thing, go from there. And that big, round, sunburned cheeks, they just glistened with tears. I don't know if he was relieved or, or what, but he choked and he coughed and he gathered a deep breath with a wheeze and he asked, I'm not good at this fugitive life, am I? And I kind of shook my head. I said, well, you've been lucky, but not really. So I gave him some money for a plane ticket home and cab fare. I literally put him in a cab and I sent him off to face his consequences. And I didn't hear about Amos for almost 20 years, and I saw in the newspaper, International Herald, it was, uh, I saw in the newspaper, I think it was in Greece at the time, and he was discovered running a dive charter business on a small island in Polynesia. He never went to the airport. He married a beautiful woman who had actually came from New York to dive, and he, re he was recognized by a school board member when one of their friends was showing pictures of their dive vacation, and there he was. And they said, that's the guy that robbed the school board. 
Now, fugitives have narratives. Some fugitives are running from other powers and not the law. And a fugitive that I quite liked and got to know quite well and knew that he was a fugitive all along, but I loved him anyway, was a guy named Teddy Rollins. He looked uh, more Sicilian than most Sicilians. Um, he said he was Irish, English, and Bostonian, as if Bostonian was uh, some sort of genetic heritage. But he always wore a Red, Red Sox hat, tilted back on his head, and he had this big black, super black hair, and a big tuff of curls that sort of fell out onto his forehead, sort of like the pictures you would see of the statues of Adonis and all the rest of that stuff. He had these sort of deep set, and I mean this in, in the nicest chocolate-colored eyes. And to look at him, you know, you would see in those eyes like this sort of sadness and this sort of vulnerability. But make no mistake, he was anything but vulnerable. He was a predator, and he was one tough son of a gun. I was in a cafe in Antibes, France, drinking coffee and going through the Herald looking at the American news, and I was reading the box scores. I learned to read box scores from my grandfather, who was a sports writer. I could recreate the game in my head. Now, the Phillies are my team, for better or worse, and they lost uh, last night to Pittsburgh 2-1. to one. They lost the lead in the eighth because of a hit batter by a rookie reliever. The next batter hit a double, driving in one run, making it 1-1. And with the pitcher batting, why was the pitcher, the starting pitcher, still batting in the eighth? I don't know. But I found in the box score from the day before that they had played a doubleheader. And both doubleheaders went extra innings, and they're in a pennant race, and so they used everybody except for this guy, and he had to take the ball and go all the way. He had to go the distance. And this I get from the box score. So the pitcher hits a single, drives in a run, and the final score is 2-1. to one. At that moment, I felt a shadow fall over the paper. With the sun at his back, he stood over me like a gangster in an Italian spaghetti western and said, who you rooting for? I said, I'm a Phillies fan. He said, good. In a guttural, good, exhaled like, uh, like the air from a punch in your gut. If you were a Yankees fan, I wouldn't be your friend. And he sat down across from me. You from Philly? And I said, yes. And he launched into the story about driving to Philly in a school bus with his band. He played guitar. Now, his thick hammer-like fingers made me doubt the truth about the statement, but later I found out that he was actually a pretty good player. They were on their way to Florida, and when they, when they, ran, in off, well, when they ran off a road, uh, I guess it was I-95 in a snowstorm, and it happened that the bus ended up in the middle of a clover leaf off the highway. And it was stuck in the mud and in the snow. 
So they grabbed their shit and they walked over to a Holiday Inn as was right off the, the freeway. They left a note that they would be back after the storm. They stayed in the ho- this Holiday Inn and played in the lounge for a week because the band who was supposed to play was stuck in Altoona because of a snowstorm, because of the snowstorm. So Teddy um, would go on and on with these stories. They were, they were mostly really funny. And there was always this drugs, rock and roll, and mishap kind of stuff that went along with it. And to read Terry, Teddy, you have to actually, you have to really read him. Um, he's telling you the truth. The truth just happens to be under all these crazy stories in these details. But if he liked you, he would be a really super loyal friend. And he, he is today still a loyal friend. But if he didn't like you, you could be pond scum. He wouldn't care. So discerning the truth about Teddy was sort of like reading a uh, box score in a baseball game. It took a lot of work. The information was there and names, positions, innings, hits, types of hits, runs, scored, RBIs, innings, pitch, etc. But the truth, as much as I could discern after hundreds of hours of hanging out with Teddy, was something like this. And this is why he was where he was. Teddy grew up with a kid nicknamed American Express because he was welcomed everywhere. He was the son of a notorious gangster, and Teddy got sucked into that world. Teddy had started a construction company to build houses in the Boston area. He was a master cabinet maker. He was an excellent, excellent cabinet maker. still is. He was so good with wood that he was building cabinets for mega yachts, passerelles, you name it. He, he could build anything on the boat. And the finished quality and work that he was doing was just is the highest of standards. And he's very, he was very much in demand. But again, he was the sort of character that was in the boating world, the yacht world, Antibes, South of France. He just kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. He was big. He, he just didn't look like he belonged there. So American Express, being a childhood friend, they, just, they partnered up. And American Express went and borrowed some money from his father, the gangster. So he and Teddy could buy some land and build some houses. But the deal went sideways from there. American Express didn't work. Um, He preferred to do coke and play in the band and do everything but work. And when the loans came due, Teddy was held responsible. American Express had spent most of the money on coke, blown it up his nose. And his mobster father wasn't going to press his degenerate son. So he blamed Teddy for everything, even for American Express's behavior. So one day while on the business site or on the building site, Teddy was installing some cabinets in a kitchen when two mob thugs showed up to teach him a lesson. And the lesson went all wrong. Teddy defended himself. And like I said before, 
He is a solid 6-3. And he has this sort of relentless viciousness that's inside him. He put both thugs in the hospital in critical condition. And he knew at that point that his time in Boston was done. So he walked away from the site. He got on a plane and he went to Europe. How he settled in Antibes, I have no earthly idea. I've never figured out how he got that far. At first, he kept kind of a low profile. And after a while, his mother had extracted a promise from their next door mob boss to leave her son alone. But he had made one stipulation. The mob boss had made one stipulation that he never see his face again in Boston. And Teddy had to live in Antibes as a fugitive, in which he has for over 30 years. So fugitives come to be fugitives for different kinds of crimes. Amos was really a con man, and he had no moral center. And he was pitiful, and his pitifulness was his cover for somebody who is very manipulative and very and 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 just taking greed and all the rest of those things that you can imagine. Teddy, on the other hand, just ended up in a bad situation. And he he wanted to preserve his life from that very predictable retribution that gangsters give out. But my third fugitive is a guy named David Taylor. And he's probably, as a fugitive, maybe the worst of the crowd. Um, he was he was a thief. Um, Interpol was looking for him. And he, they were looking for him for a couple of different things. From A, robbing a bank armed robbery, theft of boats, and he was a suspect in a murder investigation. So he kind of had, you know, the trifecta going for him. And this is this is sort of the person you would think would be more a um, fugitive from the law. In a way, he, he was, in every sense of the word, a pirate. Um... David uh, was was wanted by Interpol and Scotland Yard. Um, and how I learned this was I was fueling my boat in Antigua. Um, we had just done the Antigua boat show, um, charter boat show. We had just come across from, from Europe. And an Interpol agent had stopped by my boat and, and, and had asked me about David. Um, and as it, you know, I had crossed with David. He was one of my crew. We had arrived like two weeks earlier. And I hadn't seen him since we got off the boat. And I was actually just going to leave. I mean, he had a British passport. You know, I cleared him in with the rest of the crew. And the Interpol agent, who was a Belgian man, who, again, looked like a policeman with his black dress shoes and that were slightly scuffed and his low heels and 
a tie and a sports jacket that was never in style, no matter what he thought, standing there in this beautiful, idyllic, tropical Antigua, English Harbor, you know, <laughs> sore thumb. And he was completely out of his comfort zone. He didn't know one boat from another boat. He didn't even know what they were boats, I don't think. So he asked me where he was going, where David was going, and I, I didn't know. I said, look, he just, you know, we came, he hopped off the boat just like the rest of the crew, said thank you very much for the ride, and off he went. And um, then the agent kind of got suspicious on me, and it was like, um, are you knowingly aiding a felon? And I'm like, I'm looking at him going, no. I said, he just said, thanks for the ride, and he left. I did see him briefly speaking to another um, skipper outside the Incanto restaurant, which is an Italian restaurant in um, uh, between... Um, it's, an Italian, it's an Italian restaurant in uh, Antigua, um, outside of English Harbor. Between Falmouth and English Harbor, there's a road. And it's it's on there. It's right at the the end of it, and and that's another that whole Italian restaurant thing in Antigua is another story that I can probably tell. But the agent wanted me, you know, to try to give him more information, which I didn't have, and 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 then he told me just to kind of shock me, um, you know, that he was David was considered dangerous. I had spent just a, a month and a half with the guy, and I didn't see it. I didn't see that coming. You know, in the yachting world, there's lots of people wanting to escape from the world. You know, lots of 20 or 30-somethings who started down the corporate path only to get frustrated with their progress and take a hiatus, you know, crewing and traveling around the world. And David seemed like that sort of guy. He was clean-cut. Blonde hair, blue eyes, 5'10", athletic build, quick with a smile. He's a perfect crewmate. And, and he matched agents, uh, the agent's description of David. And I could see David in a corporate setting. He was very bright. He was very articulate. He spoke fluent French and Spanish. He was well-educated. And as we, he and I had discussed... Um, and he said this funny thing. He says, I'm as well-educated as the English school system would allow a coal miner's son. I'll never forget that line. And David was a good sailor. And, you know, he was, he was, you can always tell, you can tell really fast experienced sailors. They take to the task of trimming a sail or hoisting the anchor or helming. Um, I knew David uh, was my kind of people. You know, I... You know, I came from Wales. My family, some of my family came from Wales. And my great-grandfather um, was an orphan from the Isle of Man. He was a Welsh fam from a Welsh family. They had died, and he was an orphan. And a Dutch family had come and um, adopted him. And basically, the adoption was just to get him out of England, and they brought him to America and he was uh, an indentured servant until he was like 25 years old. Um, and they were in the coal mining business in Scranton. Um, and like, you know, other kids from working backgrounds, uh, 
um, you know, he, he, he ended up being pretty savvy. And I think, you know, David was pretty savvy in the ways of the world where his classmates from upper income families were not. So he, he was a bit, he was ahead of everybody in that regard of, of really knowing, you know, the ins and outs, being able to read people, having good street sense and all the rest of that stuff. He did speak to me about having a daughter and he was really sad. I could see that he was emotionally sad. And I knew I wasn't being hustled when he, when he said this. Because he didn't really hustle me. He just shared being a sailor in the ocean for like a month and a half. I picked him up in Rhodes, Greece. When I was looking for crew to go to the Caribbean. And there wasn't very much crew at that point. You know, uh, the season had ended. People had sort of gravitated back to their places. And he just jumped at the at the chance and came on board, and you know, it was cool. Um, and you know, I've done a lot of crossings, and and you know, finding competent crew um, is a real major cha- task. I, I mean, I've tried agencies, I've gotten lots of people, and the, I've gotten mixed results to say the least, and m- more negative results than positive results. I like picking up guys and sometimes girls with enough competence and kindness in their hearts and eyes and personal responsibility to uh, stand watch while I get some shut eye. Because basically sailing the boat a long distance is a pretty boring thing. You just don't want to run into stuff. That's, that's kind of the main thing. You don't want to run into other vessels. You want to keep it all on the up and up. And, um, you know, just that's your job. If there's some sail trimming or stuff, if you can do that, that's great. If not, okay. If there's a storm coming, yeah, great. I'm going to be up, all right? I'm the guy, and I'll be taking care of all the big stuff. But if I have somebody like David who was super confident, I really could rest. I could just really go into a deep sleep and not worry about it because he was every bit as competent as I was. And he asked all the right questions. And and I used to always speak about him like as an illustration of my super mate. And I guess over all these years, I've probably trained 40, 50 mates, maybe more. Um, I don't I couldn't tell you. Um, a lot of people have have done their time and and I've worked with them and taught them stuff about sailing and managing boats, all sorts of boats, yachts, sailing, power boats, sailing yachts. So there is a bit of a legacy there. But the stories about, and there are plenty of stories about men whose lives are completely wrong on land, um, and they go out to sea and have a wonderful, productive life. Um, and, and, you know, it's they could be like the worst people on land, bank robbing, thieving, murdering people, but, you know, they can also be a perfect sailor. And that isn't an unusual story through history if you look at a lot of, um, you know, tales and stories and, you know, people fall into this sort of fugitive thing, pirate thing in some cases, not because they're bad people, but just because circumstances sort of drove him in that particular direction. 
So before this agent, this Belgian Interpol agent, stepped off the field dock, uh, he walked on the dock like he like one walks on ice. Um, I said to him, I said, you'll never catch him. And the agent nodded to me saying, we will. So the years passed. And, you know, I was going back and forth across the Atlantic. I was chartering in the Caribbean, chartering outside of, uh, in Turkey and Greece and France and Italy, and, and just moving back and forth and, and, you know, quite happy at the time to be doing that. And I had taken the boat um, down to Chigaramas and um, Trinidad, and I was having some work done on the boat. And um, I just happened to be, the boat just happened to be in the, in the slip. And I was standing on the back. I, I don't know, I was fussing with the lines, as I usually do. And I looked up and I see this catamaran moving along. And, I mean, this is years later. This is like maybe eight, ten years later. And and who, who do I see but David? He's just he's just helming the boat. And you know, I, I looked over at him and I said, Oh, David. And he just looked at me from a from a distance, waved, and just kept on going. Um it was it was like the weirdest thing, and and so that was like the, the of seeing him just sort of disappear, um, but you know it was his narrative, it was his narrative to stay free, and and from what I gathered uh, later, is that he was making a living, um, moving boats around. Um, he spent a great deal of time in Colombia and Venezuela, um, in Central America. Um, he didn't really have to worry about Interpol and the authorities so much down there. And um, he sort of created his own life, a new life. And ironically, I met his daughter. Um, it, we, we had been talking about, I was talking, who was I talking? I was talking to somebody, and this is just, I wasn't even planning to say this, but I, I was in Antigua, and I was talking to to uh, somebody, and we got onto this whole subject about Interpol and this, that, and other thing. And and this young guy says to me, he says, "Oh, he says you need to talk to Debbie." So she, you know, here comes this uh, bouncy, um, blonde, blue-eyed um, sailor comes popping over. Hi, how you doing? You know, da 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 da. And she goes, "You, you knew my dad." And I, I, I looked at her. I said, "Like, yeah, okay, maybe." Well, it turns out that David actually kept in touch with his daughter and had told her stories, had sent her letters from wherever he was in the world, and kept this whole thing up. Um, their relationship up. And he had mentioned my boat. I guess he mentioned it afterwards because the boat was the boat, you know? And that was sort of the end of the 
the whole thing. And he was, you know, relating. I was a good person to him and all the rest of the stuff. And he was being very honest and, and, and forthright with his daughter. And now his daughter was here for race week. She was hoping to see her father at some point. And um, she didn't know. So I asked her, I said, do you think he's going to show up? She said, oh, no, he'll never show up here. She said, I, I'm, I'm actually going to go to Columbia, and I'm going to hang out there for a while and see if he, if, he, if he shows up. I don't know where he is. I said, okay, cool. And, and, and that was sort of the end of the conversation. And the disconnectedness in my heart was also, in a way, family being away from family, um, sort of pushing family away is more or less the, the key topic, and end up, you know, embracing this life as a sailor and becoming like the other fugitives, um, more or less, uh, you know, my life as a sailor was a good life. It was a perfectly good life, and it lasted and has lasted for many, many years. And it's an enjoyable you know, way to look at it, where my life on land, um, for the most part is, you know, complicated and struggling and difficult and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But this is the story of three fugitives, you know, Amos, Teddy, David, um, con man, um, a guy who was forced to be in a new place, um, to become a new person um, because he valued his life. And another guy who had made some serious, serious mistakes. And, and I did find out in some detail that the bank robbery thing was not what you think. Um, they had charged him with armed robbery. Um, when in fact it was a check kiting scheme that he was involved in, um, the the murder thing was was dropped, um, and he he of course he was, you know, guilty of stealing boats. Yeah, and from what I understand, he had stolen quite a few. And I know that he's in my lifetime of seeing him off and on that he had stolen plenty of boats, and actually had made a living at it. But he was always nice. He was a good guy in that regard. Um, he stole from the man and not from the individual, so to speak. But, you know, I I grew up uh, in Philly, as I said before. And the last two years I spent of my high school years in Bay Village, Ohio. And so I've always been sort of into this uh, concept of fugitives. And the reason is... if. You have to be a little bit older to know this, the Dr. Sam Shepard murders. Dr. Sam Shepard was a very famous uh, neurosurgeon. Um, he, was, he, he was accused of murdering his wife. He said he didn't do it, that a one-armed man had done it. And he had struggled with him. And um, he ended up going to prison. And it was, it was, you can't imagine, it was a national story huge story, sensational story. And not to get too much into the whole sadness of Dr. Sam Shepard's life. But in any case, he did go to jail. He got out of jail. 
Um, his entire life was ruined because of this situation, but um, they had made a television show starring David Jansen, um, and it was uh, called The Fugitive. And then later, uh, they made the movie with Harrison Ford called The Fugitive. And all of this stuff happened a couple of doors down from where I grew up. So it's a very sort of touchstone subject for me. But I hope that you're careful when you're out there and you're meeting people. Um, you never know what people are going to, uh, what their histories are. You don't know what their narrative is, what the true narrative is. Um, and there's always, there's always something. Um, I, had, I had a girl who was a, a chef that, that had written a couple of movies. Um, and I had another uh, girl that I knew very well that um, she wrote a few books and was actually quite a famous um, children's book author, and, and, but never said anything. So there's some good stuff that comes from that and some bad stuff. But anyway, I'll leave you with, uh, with The Fugitives today. And uh, thank you for listening. Please like and share. Um, the music up front is uh, Paulette McWilliams. Um, the other music is by our friend Tommy Twain. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Go to offshoreexplorer.org and uh, make a, leave me a note. Um, I'll be happy to answer it. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.